America's Coach, read by Scott Chapin. Pro football is of all our sports, the shortest on romance. It is not the summer game or the city game or the winter game or Saturday's America, or even an honest idiot's delight like pro wrestling. All-out 11-man tackle is not quite a game, really, since few people watch it firsthand and fewer play it. Yet if it is essentially a television program, it is a superior one. At a time when baseball has become a freak stat show and hockey a leaden, demoralized trudge and basketball a variant of Russian ballet with single shining stars and subsidiary swans, football defends the integrity of its seasons, the value of its playoffs, even a certain teeming righteously anonymous teaminess in its teams. It can still support small cities, giving championships to Green Bay and Denver, and nurturing back to life the Cleveland Browns. But still, no romance. The nearest thing that pro football has, or had to a popular romantic epic, is the tale of Vince Lombardi, the Italian-American from Brooklyn who in 1959 went to a snowbound little town in Wisconsin that had no business having a professional football team in the first place, and made the Green Bay Packers the permanent American pattern of teamwork, sacrifice, group effort, and discipline in a common cause. As every kid used to know, Lombardi's Packers dominated pro football throughout the 60s, playing a reassuring ground base of solid Americana to the decade's matter music. Between 1960 and 1968, when Lombardi departed for an abortive career with the Washington Redskins, he died of cancer in 1970. The Packers won five NFL championships, including three in a row, and the first two Super Bowls. For a generation coming to football, Lombardi summed up the type of coach in all his hard, soft glory. Famously tough, fair, with his short camel's hair coat, his earnest Borgnine voice, his gappy smile, even his funny suburban dad's hat. Lombardi seemed like a sort of Italian Spencer Tracy in a boy's town for very big boys. The images of Lombardi years in Green Bay as they were captured and spread wide by NFL Films, the fledgling propaganda office of the Pete Rozelle Papacy. The snow, the muddy faces, the huge pulling offensive linemen whose movement played back in slow motion looked even more lumbering and purposeful and stately than it did on the ground. Above all, the cold and the capes, the steam escaping from two short mouths as the lights of the stadium flared in the lens and the Packers marched off with another victory. All this seemed reasonably near romance, as near as this cagey, brutal television product could hope to get. Lombardi's life is now for the first time the subject of a serious, ambitious, non-sports fan's book by the Washington Post journalist David Moranis, called a bit achingly, When Pride Still Mattered, Simon & Schuster, $26. Moranis, who won a Pulitzer for his biography of Bill Clinton, plays in the Cultural Watershed Conference, and seems to believe that everything that happens on a playing field can be shown to be a neat reflection of the social history of America at the time, with the thought apparently never having occurred that this spectacle is, after all, taking place in the funhouse, where the mirrors are supposed to distort things. Moranis, trying to explain why the famous defensive line at Fordham in the 1930s on which Lombardi played was called the Seven Blocks of Granite, writes, 
there could be no better time for a perfect and permanent object than in 1936. Dust storms rage in the American heartland, the Germans storm into the Rhineland, depression and totalitarianism spread in life all around. But the Fordham Wall still stands. So presumably in the slack 60s, the same line would have been known as the Seven Spongy Guys. Nonetheless, Moranis is a good reporter, and he's gathered some news. Of all his discoveries, it's perhaps the depth and extent of Lombardi's New Yorkness that is most surprising. He's been so effectively kidnapped into Middle America that we forget he was as New York Catholic as Jimmy Breslin or Jackie Gleason. W.C. Hines, the fine sports writer who's run to daylight, is one of the resources of the Lombardi myth, took a set of notes from his early life, which are a compressed haiku representation of a New York Catholic boyhood of the period. Both parents, perfectionist, two-story wooden frame house, gray, cathedral prep, complete four years, Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn. Perfectionist, as in most immigrant family stories, is a euphemism for brutal. His father had the words work and play tattooed on either fist. Sometimes American life needs no gloss and could hit equally well with both. This seems to have left young Vince with an empty place, a hunger for someone who might tear you down, but would then take the trouble to build you back up again. Lombardi became a minor star at Fordham in the late 30s, at a time when disconcerting thought, New York was the college football capital of the country. A time when Fordham, NYU, and Columbia had nationally regarded teams, mostly with a local Catholic and immigrant flavor. It was not down or out or west or south, but right uptown that Lombardi found his vocation, as the least talented and most aggressive of the seven blocks. Bright, driven, and ferociously competitive, Lombardi was also, interestingly, scared to death of pain, and therefore obsessed with overcoming it. He got a job at the tail end of the Depression at St. Celia High in Inglewood, New Jersey, where both the team and the school itself were called the Saints. His star player, Mickey Corcoran, says that his method was to rip your butt out, then pat you on the butt. Corcoran later passed the method on, hot from the master, to the young Bill Parcells. Lombardi took his next step forward when he went up the river to West Point for an assistance job with the already legendary Army coach Earl Red Blake, who hero-worshipped General MacArthur and was running probably the best program in the country. Lombardi's ultimate ambition, then, was to get a job back in the city at one of the Catholic colleges. Even in the mid-50s, pro football was still a bit of a raffish, seedy sport, like baseball at the turn of the century, run by bookies and gambling men like the Roonies in Pittsburgh and the Maras in New York. You soon realize what a leap of purpose was necessary for Lombardi to go to work for a pro football team, which he did in 1954, when he became the Giants' offensive coach. The newly hired defensive coach was Tom Landry, who later as the coach of the Dallas Cowboys would become Lombardi's greatest rival. Together, Lombardi and Landry brought a new, technocratic General Motors style to the sport. It was typical of the period that the Maras would give neither one the head coaching job, instead letting them do all the work, while a figurehead coach, Jim Lee Howell, a good old boy from Arkansas, stood around and looked the part. Far from being the inspirational, emotional leader of the legend, 
Lombardi was seen as a cool, educated technocrat. Think was the headline on a photo spread about him in one of the New York tabloids. Moranis, in narrating Lombardi's early years, insists that the key to his development was his exposure to Jesuit doctrine at Fordham, St. Ignatius of Loyola, as interpreted by a theologian named Father Ignatius Wiley Cox. But 30 pages later, we meet Coach Blake of West Point, who had pretty much the same approach to football, the same obsession with the will exercised on disposition, thought, emotion, and action, i.e., regimenting the kids within an inch of their lives, and yet presumably wouldn't have known St. Ignatius from a hole in the ground. In Blake's case, the ethic is put down to dour Presbyterianism. Not that there isn't a Catholic element to Lombardi's career, but it seems to have worked at a more practical level. He profited first from the existence of a kind of informal Catholic network within football, which helped him get jobs and advanced his reputation, rather than the way the Jewish network operated around the same time in show business. Tim Colhane, a PR man at Fordham, acted as a kind of a one-person spin machine, beatifying Lombardi when he became the sports editor of Look and helping out with Lombardi's speeches well into the late 60s. If anything, Lombardi's Catholicism seems to have made him less obsessed with imposing discipline, less imprisoned by his own principles, and readier to make the smart, pragmatic compromise than the Blake Wask type could ever be. A central Catholic idea, after all, is that you can adapt to any circumstances, as long as you know what your core dogma is. Despite his reputation as a martinet, Lombardi was in fact a remarkably adaptable coach. He yelled at his players a lot, but when his Green Bay quarterback Bart Starr asked him to stop yelling, Lombardi stopped yelling. He was tough on players who could take it, like his receiver Max McGee, and easy on players who couldn't, like the golden boy Paul Horning. He even quietly tolerated and encouraged gay players when they appeared. The real secret of his success was his ability to adapt without seeming to compromise. This is a good way to run a church or a football team. Lombardi's connection to another member of the informal Catholic football mafia was what, in 1959, got him the job at Green Bay. The real genius of the pack, it turns out, and all credit to Moranis for discovering it, was a brilliant, doomed young scout named Jack Venissi. It was Venissi who assembled nearly all the great players, Paul Horning, Bart Starr, Jim Taylor, Ray Nitschke, Jerry Kramer, who would play for Lombardi at Green Bay. We hover here on the edge of debunking. Lombardi didn't put together that team. Venissi did, and anyone could have won with those players. But then Moranis pulls back. Which is more important, the talent of the troops or the skill of the leader, he asks. And then he says that the question is unresolvable. Okay. But unresolvable isn't the same thing as inarguable or beyond analysis. It's surprising to hard to prove that any coach has ever actually accomplished anything. After all, two of the agreed-on genius coaches of our time, Bill Walsh of the 49ers and Earl Weaver of the Orioles, both saw their teams win championships the year after they retired, with lowly unknowns doing just as well as the old Wizards ever had. Even the great Bill James in his book on baseball managers gets stumped trying to figure out who's good and who's just lucky, and ends up writing a lot about Sparky Anderson. Still, Lombardi's record is so extraordinary that it's hard not to see it as the fruit of a system. Writing about Lombardi's first years with the Packers, Moranis conveys the impression that what he really brought to Green Bay was not pride, 
which is in the Catholic scheme a sin, but fear, an important Catholic virtue. When fear still mattered, might have been a better title for Lombardi's life, and more honest to the period as well. Once he had assembled his players, he scared them half to death, threatening them with professional extinction at every moment, and made them work past the constraints that held back most other players. Football hurts all the time. The natural reaction of the pro coach was to respect the limits of desire and push the players, who were after all professionals, as hard as they could be pushed, and no harder. Lombardi's insight was that you could push players much, much harder than coaches normally did in pro ball, and they wouldn't rebel. They might burn out eventually, but that wasn't your problem. He grasped that deep inside even Bart Starr and Ray Nitschke were high school kids, eager to satisfy. What's more, he grasped that because they were so gifted, they had never been pushed as hard as they could be. Lombardi made the fear and the pain tolerable by simplifying the work. He wasn't just trying to build character or urging players to have a winning attitude. He asked them to master specific tasks with clear rewards. On offense, he asked them to master a single play. We're going to take a giant step backward, gentlemen, he said in training camp. And then he built the entire Green Bay offense around the famous 49 power sweep, an intricate elephant's dance that had the interior linemen running against their instinct and the halfbacks waiting against theirs. He forced his players to practice the sweep over and over 10 or 11 hours at a stretch until its complicated mechanics were second nature to them and it became an almost mystical experience. The sweep, Ron Kramer, a Packer tight end, said later, is really all of life. We all have to do things together to make this thing we call America great. If we don't, we're fucked. Lombardi also grasped the paradoxical complementary truth that tiny gestures are more effective in motivating men than big rewards. So, along with the repetition came an emphasis on symbols, on dress codes, work codes, a right way and a wrong way to do everything. He even encouraged his players to tip the locker room attendants so they would get better quality talc. The players thought he was a cheapskate at contract time, but they still recalled a lift that the words, your starting Sunday, which he took care to say in public, could produce. More than anything else, Lombardi grasped that you could push your players only if they believed that they could trust you not to betray their interests. That if you threatened them with professional extinction, you also rewarded them with professional advancement. And not just advancement in the game. You had to give them the sense that the discipline you insisted on would serve them outside football, mostly by landing them securely in the middle classes. High school kids, he sensed, played for a college scholarship. College kids were shot at the pros, and pros were a permanent hold on a decent existence. Lombardi's Packers did go on to an impressive degree to do the kinds of things football players did then if they could. Insurance, broadcasting, running car dealerships. He was able to scare his players so effectively because on some decent level, he shared their fears, understood that even the toughest among them quaked at the idea of being used and then used up. Lombardi, during this time, got handcuffed to the slogan, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. And so he was thought of as the military coach, the general-in-waiting. But the truth is that, for all the rhetoric, football is nothing like war, where the crucial thing is not to fight better on equal terms, but to get 33 players to your opponent's 11. 
Though generals worry about morale, they don't worry much about motivation. The alternative to fighting being dying. Rocky Blyer, the Pittsburgh Steelers back who fought in Vietnam, once remarked to Roy Blount that in certain ways it was easier to fight in a battle than to play football. Since in a battle, you were there to take orders and didn't really have any choice. While in football, there was, in effect, always a little voice inside you wondering why you didn't give it all up for that sporting goods store in Palookaville. A football coach, unlike a general, has to motivate his troops over and over again. A general just has to make sure he can get some more troops. The price that coaches like Lombardi seem to pay is to not have so much an unhappy inner life as a remarkably flat one. The dance of distance and intimacy that they have to practice is so consistently demanding that there's nothing left. The glimpses that we get of Lombardi at home are not of a coach trying to regiment his family, but of a guy who has mostly just left it at the office. Lombardi riding back and forth with a son whom he loved to the practice field in silence. Lombardi absentmindedly teasing and then ignoring his daughter. Lombardi not wanting to pick up a late-night phone call for fear that something might have happened to his halfback. Lombardi, most painfully of all, letting his wife, who was about as happy in Green Bay as any other bright New Jersey girl would be, drift into hard drinking without doing much to stop it. The most memorable glimpse of Lombardi at home is of him sitting on a sofa turning the pages of cookbooks, staring for hours at the recipes of dishes no one in his house would ever make. Although Lombardi liked to pretend that he had been exiled to anonymity, in fact his legend benefited enormously and predictably from his being way out there in Wisconsin. Like the literary critics racing up from London to Hull to admire Philip Larkin, imagine a man with enough integrity not to go to book parties. Lombardi's old New York sports writer friends loved to make the trip to Green Bay to ogle at what their pal had done in the sticks. W.C. Hines then Dick Schapp and finally Howard Cosell himself all came up to Green Bay to worship. Cosell was immensely flattered when Lombardi called him coach. Nobody had the heart to tell him that Lombardi called everybody coach. From the mid-60s on, in fact, Lombardi was so legendary that he was looking to get out of Green Bay into a position where he could actually own part of a team. He started giving motivational speeches, the seven building blocks of victory, that sort of thing, to lunches of anxious businessmen. By the late 60s, though he remained a model of how you went life to his admirers, he'd become a model of why we're losing in Vietnam to his detractors. The Kennedy, Catholic, technocratic liberal was embraced by Richard Nixon, who even considered him for the vice presidency. It was, on reflection, the Nixon years that made pro football lose the little romance that the Lombardi years had been creating for it. Nixon hugged the game so tight that the color drained right out of it. He did the same thing to the space program and took all of Tom Wolfe's Crayolas to put the color back in. This is sad because Nixon's love of the game seems to have been one of the few completely sincere things about him. He sent plays into the Redskins coach George Allen, and they weren't stupid. But he made pro football look, well, Nixonian. It's no surprise that the two best football books, George Plimpton's Mad Ducks and Bears and Roy Blount's About Three Bricks Short of a Load, date from the early 70s and are essentially anti-Lombardi tracks. Both books, Plimpton's About the Maverick Alex Karras, Blount's About the 1973 Pittsburgh Steelers, insist against the grain that what really makes football teams go are scotch and dirty jokes, a rabelaisian spirit de croix 
with the seven building blocks and the team discipline and the rest of it strictly for the birds or the fans. On his deathbed, Lombardi was still making plays, discussing with the Redskins quarterback Sonny Jerkinson how to beat a 3-4 defense. From an early football point of view, his achievement as a coach now looks secondary, like a big parenthesis in the development of the game. The same play executed over and over and over again was only going to work in a league that was in some respects locked in stasis, as the NFL was in the field in the early 60s. Moranis repeats a famous story about Lombardi teaching his sweep to an audience of wide-eyed coaches for eight hours. But he misses the central football point of the story, which is that chief among the men listening was Sid Gilman, about to become the coach of the San Diego Chargers. Gilman, who will never be the subject of a biography, is by far the most influential coach of the last 40 years. He had the insight that there was nothing to stop you from using the passing game in the same way that Lombardi used his running game, which would give you all the benefits of possession football, only at 10 to 20 yards at a crack. It was this faith that Gilman passed on to his own disciple, Bill Walsh, who, touching Gilman's scheme with Rube Goldberg complexity, won three Super Bowls in the 80s and, in turn, passed it on to his disciples, who now dominate the game, including the last three Super Bowls. In our own day, among successful coaches, only Bill Parcells, who received Lombardi's doctrine in pure form from Corcoran, can really be called a Lombardian. Yet the gap between Walsh and Lombardi isn't decisive. Above all, Lombardi was a detail freak. Walsh's own book, Finding the Winning Edge for All Its Razzle-Dazzle Play Schematics, spends most of its pages laying out clear lines of responsibility for everyone from the interior lineman to the stadium beverage manager. Just as baseball is really blue-collar rather than bucolic, so pro football is really managerial rather than military. It gives form to the mid-level manager's belief that you can work every problem, that organizational science will get you anywhere you want to go. Perhaps this is the real spell that pro football casts and explains why it is a stranger to romance. There is a poetry of the field and of the factory, of the farmer and of the proletariat, but the middle manager is always left unsung. As we recede from the great age of the organization man and move into the age of unorganized man, we may at last see the manager with nostalgia. The story of Apollo 13, unthinkable as an epic in its own period, now brings tears to our eyes in all its sincere, nerdy organizational passion. Let's work the problem, gentlemen. Even the fundamental flaw in the managerial vision, the inability to see past its own systems to a world not so easily susceptible to manipulation, has in a kind of it a kind of optimism. The spirit that enables Walsh, in his list of inspirational events, to include both the Jewish fighters in the Warsaw Ghetto and Ken Venturi's victory in the 1964 U.S. Open, is part of the spirit that makes one believe that all problems, no matter how intractable, can be managed, solved that the accidents of birth and talent can be leveled by an intelligent system. Pro football, as violent as boxing, as patterned as figure skating, illuminates the hard path from sensation to meaning as well as any sport can. The coach's job to use brutal collisions as the means to meaningful patterns is the fan's job too, only in reverse. We break down the patterns into the acts of individual gumption that it takes to make them happen. Yet for an American pro football fanatic who lives abroad, what's really striking is how much this passage back and forth from the spectacle to the sport seems to be breaking down. On Fox's football broadcasts, 
or in the new style sports magazines. Football is presented as all sensation. Big hits, big plays, showy taunting, everything geared to the single shocking moment. Even the voice of the announcer on the pregame show is a World Wrestling Federation voice, stirring it up. Where the old NFL pregame show began with players in the field doing their drills, images of hard work, the search for excellence. If the Lombardi regime had its pieties, at least they were the pieties of common effort. We go to our sports for thrills, of course, but we go for more than that, too. If we start to ask for nothing but thrills from our games, the ball heading over the fence, who cares what inning, the hit breaking the man, who cares what down, then we have lost something, just as the tight end promised.